Welcome to the forum at Holy Communion. My name is Mike. I am one of the priests. And today we're doing an ongoing forum series, Bible 101. And I'm going to be talking about gender, sex, and scripture. Uh, and so I hope you'll um, enjoy this presentation. Uh, if you happen to sign in live, uh, you're welcome to add comments at any time, ask a question. I'd uh, love to have you uh, engage with us. So again, gender, sex, and scripture, uh, Bible 101 Forum. Uh, if you ask questions in the comment or YouTube or Facebook, on YouTube or Facebook, I'll try to answer them as we go. Um, so the first thing I would talk about is that uh, gender and sex and scripture, around gender and sex, sometimes we think of that as the third rail of the Bible. Uh, and whenever I say that, I immediately am a West Wing nerd. And so I go to this one episode of the West Wing where Toby is trying to make an adjustment. He thinks there's a window where you can save social security. And he says to the president uh, that he wants to do this. And the president says, social security is the third rail of American politics. Touch it and you die. And Toby says, that's because the third rail is where all the power is. That's where, because the third rail is where all the power is. So I know that there are folks that are uncomfortable just with the idea of talking about gender and sex and the Bible. There are folks that think that it's a settled question. And I would argue with you that there is more to say. And that when we look at sex and gender in the Bible, there is a great deal of power in these stories. Um, we've known the ugliness of that power over the centuries, the way in which sexuality and gender in the Bible has been used to oppress folks. And, and by opening up some of these stories, there is an opportunity there is maybe even something to be heard of the presence of God in these stories. But let me say something about what something that today is not about. Today is not, this forum is not about the clobber texts. Uh, there are those texts in the Bible that are often used to, we say, clobber folks. Uh, stuff like Paul telling women they should be quiet in church. I'm not going to spend my time on those questions today. I feel like those questions have been really uh, argued over and I'm less interested in some of them. What I want to do is enter specifically into some certain stories, stories you may not have heard or stories you may not have heard interpreted in the way in which I'm going to open up some interpretations. And for this, know that I lean on a number of women, womanist, queer, people of color, scholars that have had to find their own stories within the text. And so they have opened up some stories that may not have been traditionally as open. Uh, so Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza is one of the most important feminist scholars of the Bible, uh, teaching at Harvard. And she has this to say, Intellectual neutrality is not possible in a historical world of exploitation and oppression. You can't be neutral on questions of gender and sex in the Bible. 
because there is a world around us that has read things a certain way and used texts in a certain way. Intellectual neutrality is not possible in a historical world of exploitation and oppression. Let's open up a story or two. First, before we do that though, um, a couple of things to say about both gender and sexuality. First, gender is fluid over time. Gender is fluid over time. I remember really specifically when I was in eighth grade uh, and we went on a class trip to Colonial Williamsburg. And of everything I remember about Colonial Williamsburg, I remember being in like the store that was the supposed like haberdashery. And they were showing clothing patterns and the ways that people would have uh, worn clothes. And I will never forget that the historical interpreter showed us flower prints, like prints of cloth with beautiful flowers on them and said, in the time of George Washington, it was considered very masculine to wear flower prints. And I remember being a little eighth grader, a little queer eighth grade boy who was still dealing with my own queerness and thinking, how is that possible? How is it possible that George Washington, this like image of American masculinity would have worn flower prints? How could that ever have been masculine? And the answer is gender is fluid over time. What is appropriate? How we ascribe certain gender roles has changed over time. Roles have flu been fluid. What is appropriate has been fluid. It's true from George Washington to today, and it is certainly true over the thousands of years that are accounted for in the Bible. The idea of what a woman is and what a man is is not one static thing across the Bible, but shifts and ebbs and flows. And likewise, our interpretation has shifted and ebbed and flowed. Marriage in the Bible, likewise, has shifted over time. Not just our understanding of what biblical marriage is, but in the Bible itself, there are several different understandings of marriage. Let's begin with the, 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 the admission, Adam and Eve weren't married. There was no one around to preside over the ceremony. The earliest people didn't know marriage as a ceremony, as a commitment, as something blessed by the church. Early, early, humans weren't married to one another. And then we get into some of the various understandings of marriage that are in the Bible. The Bible includes several figures, prominent figures, important figures that practice polygamy. And polygamy, multiple marriage partners, is viewed as part of the story of God's working, God's purposes out. Now, Sarah and Hagar could be an entire unpacking, but let's start there. Abraham is the parent of many nations, and Abraham has children with both Sarah and Hagar. It's viewed as part of God's working God's purposes out. Likewise, Leah and Rachel are married to Jacob. Uh, Jacob wants to marry Rachel. First, he has to marry Leah. And that is part of God's working out the plan for all of Israel. And we can get all the way to Solomon, who's pictured here um, with his harem, with his many, many wives. But having multiple partners and multiple spouses is part of biblical marriage, at least one definition of biblical marriage. 
Then you get to the time of Jesus, and you may know that famous parable uh, when the scholars come to ask Jesus, so in the resurrection, whose wife is she? It refers to a practice called leveret marriage. In Jesus' time, if you married and you widowed someone, that widow was then married to your brother. We don't understand marriage in that biblical sense these days. So biblical marriage is not a static institution. It's not one thing. In the Bible, there are all sorts of different images of marriage. Now, it is true that early Christians adopted the Roman custom of monogamy, of having just one marriage partner. And from the early Christian time, that becomes sort of the accepted Christian norm, one marriage partner. But even that monogamous marriage from the early church, you know, the sort of early interpretation of the Bible, changes for Christians over time. And for a lot of the monogamous period, there was a sense of chattel marriage, that women were the property of men in marriage. And this has roots in biblical um, teachings. It, it has roots in the idea of the bride price. But for a long time, even in the early American period, women were legally treated as the property of men. And that's where you get that uh, part that a lot of brides today do not want in their marriage ceremony, where the father hands the bride over to the groom. Chattel marriage is in the background of a lot of our monogamous understandings of marriage. But that's not the only way that marriage has changed over time. Um, in the early American period, all sorts of questions around race and marriage get introduced. Uh, enslaved people are not allowed to marry one another. Uh, and, um, and then when people are not being held in slavery, black people are only allowed to marry black people until the mid 20th century. Um, interracial marriage was banned. Holy Communion, our church, was one of the first churches in the St. Louis area to perform an interracial marriage. And so I think it is fair to say that in an institution that has changed and evolved so much over time, our current understanding of gender and marriage is in shift, is in flux. Many churches like Holy Communion uh, can see traditional biblical teachings that can hold true and hold up marriage as something that ought to be honored, even among people of the same gender. But this institution of marriage is not static in the Bible. It is not static in culture. And so don't get it in your head that the Bible has one thing to say about marriage. The Bible has a great deal to say about marriage, and some of it has a lot to do with the culture in which marriage was being practiced at the time. So let's get into some biblical stories. Um, one of the things to know about the Bible is that we select what we read. And that's true across time. But there are stories in the Bible that you may hear less. Let's talk about Deborah. In the book of Judges, Deborah is one of the judges named, one of the early leaders of Israel before Israel has a king. And uh, Deborah, as a judge and a prophet, advises Barak, the leader of Israel's army, uh, to move. Uh, she's got a prophecy and she says, you got to get going. 
And when Barack waffles about it, she prophesies that it won't be Barack, but a woman who will defeat the Canaanites. Enter Jael. I love this Renaissance painting of uh, Jael there in the front and Deborah and, um, and Barack. But Jael in the story uses her gender and her sexuality to lull Sisera, the enemy commander. She lulls him to sleep and then she drives a tent peg through his head. In the Bible, she is not the only one. Um, the, our Jewish neighbors just celebrated the Feast of Purim. When you read the scroll of Esther, there are women who liberate in scripture. And we don't tell the stories nearly often enough. But here in this story from Judges, you've got both Deborah, uh, a prophet and a leader, a judge of Israel, and Jael, a military um, leader in the scripture from um, the early history of Israel. There are scholars who have even gone so far to ask the question about Eve. You know, Eve is often maligned as the woman who followed the snake's temptation, who committed the first sin, who tricked her husband into eating the fruit of the tree. But there are biblical scholars today who wonder to what degree should Eve be counted as a liberator? To what degree does Eve take the step that God knew the people were going to take? It's a question that's out there. But that lets us look both at a story that isn't told very often, partly because it's gruesome, Jael's pretty bloody, and asks us to ask questions of a story that we're pretty sure we know what's going on. And scripture scholars would have us ask, how sure are we? Let's look at a story that's one of my favorite, though. Uh, one of these stories that is really critical uh, to today's discussion about gender and sexuality. I'm going to make the screen just a little bit bigger and disappear on you for a second. Um, I want to read the, from the first chapter of the book of Exodus about Shifra and Pua, the midwives. So this is when the new Pharaoh has come to power and the people are getting nervous about how much the folks that they're holding in slavery, the Israelites, are growing. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, spoke to two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see the baby being born, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Already you can hear that Pharaoh doesn't count women as a threat. Now the two midwives respected God so they didn't obey the Egyptian king's order. Instead, they let the baby boys live. So the king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? And the two midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women, they are much stronger and give birth before any midwives can get to them. So God treated the midwives well, and the people kept on multiplying and became very strong. And because the midwives respected God, God gave them households of their own. Then Pharaoh gave an order to all his people, throw every baby boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile River. But you can let the girls, all the girls, live. This is where Exodus starts. This is where Exodus starts. 
I want to read to you a quote from one of my professors from seminary, a womanist commentary um, on Exodus. Judy Fentress Williams, in her new book, it just came out, Holy Imagination, a literary and theological introduction to the whole Bible. Uh, I'll put a link in the comments at the end. But Judy Fentress Williams writes this. When women of color read Exodus, they find themselves in the story of the midwives, Moses's birth mother, his sister, adoptive mother, and wife. We didn't get to all of those, but these characters are marginalized because of their gender and or race, yet all are instrumental in Moses and Israel's liberation. These characters are committed to the survival and wholeness of an entire people, male and female. These characters are committed to the survival and wholeness of an entire people, male and female. That's a quote from Alice Walker, defining what womanist means. God uses unlikely characters to accomplish the work of salvation. Or maybe we shouldn't say unlikely, unsuspected characters. The Hebrew midwives play on, on Pharaoh's own gender biases to accomplish the work that God would have them do, to accomplish work that God counts them as faithful for doing. These women are committed to the survival and wholeness of the entire people. The Bible has more to say about gender and sexuality than you might think. Let's jump to Joseph. So Exodus begins, the phrase that begins Exodus, that, that sets up this problem of Pharaoh that introduces the midwife. It begins with the phrase, a Pharaoh arose, a king over Egypt arose, who did not know Joseph. Who did not know Joseph. Now recall the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph had risen to power um, as an advisor to Pharaoh, as a right-hand advisor to Pharaoh. And Joseph's predilection for interpreting dreams, for being able to understand what is going to come to pass to prophesy based on dreams, is what gives Joseph this power. But Joseph's dreams got Joseph into trouble early. Joseph has a dream as a little kid that uh, the sun and the moon are going to bow down to him. And he interprets that to be that his brothers are going to bow down to him. And Joseph was a bit of a pain. I mean, whose little brother says you should be the, to their older brothers, you're going to bow down to me and has the older brothers take it well. But there's a little bit more. The early commentaries on Genesis the rabbinic commentaries on Genesis are pretty united in their reading of Joseph. Joseph is not your stereotypical little boy in their read. Joseph is beautiful, the text and the rabbis say, and that adjective brings up questions around Joseph's gender, more so because Joseph asks his father for a coat and his father gives him this coat. And there are scholars that ask whether the interpretation, this coat with long sleeves in the Hebrew, if that wasn't pretty clearly a woman's coat, a technical or dream coat in the musical's language. 
But Joseph is problematic in his family, there's no doubt. Joseph is read by his own community as having uh, questions about how Joseph is interpreting his own dressing, his own gender, his own uh, expression. There's a lot to be read in Joseph. A lot of trans scholars look at Joseph and some will go so far to say that Joseph is cross-dressing and some will simply say Joseph's experience of being cast out, sold into slavery by his family, Joseph's experience of rejection by his siblings, that is a place where people who have experienced themselves as trans, where queer folk, where LGBTQ folk can read their own story. And when you say that, it's important to look at that place of pain where Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, where Joseph's brothers return to his father and say, Joseph is dead. And at least they mean he's dead to us. But it's also important to go to the end of Joseph's story. Because if Joseph is a story where gender and or sexuality is at play, where Joseph has been, at least for those of us who read our own experience into the experience of Joseph being rejected, then what comes at the end is amazing. After Joseph has risen to power, after Joseph has prophesied and told Pharaoh to hold on to food in these great storehouses, after a drought comes and the people are in famine, Joseph's brothers come to Pharaoh's household looking for some food. Eventually, Joseph says to his brothers, he, he reveals himself. He says, I didn't die. I haven't disappeared into slavery. It's me, Joseph. And then Joseph says to his brothers, the very brothers who rejected him, the very brothers who sold him off, the very brothers who counted him off as dead. Joseph says to his brothers, and don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. There are LGBTQ folks who can read their own stories of rejection at the hands of their families into the way that Joseph's story starts. But some of the most resilient trans and queer uh, faithful folks that I know can read their story of resilience, their sense that God has accompanied them through all that they have faced, all the way to the point where out of strength, they are able to re-encounter their families and say, God sent me before you to save lives. There's more in scripture around sex and around gender than maybe you have been taught to hear. Let's jump into the New Testament. Uh, around Advent time, or the beginning of December every year, I love to watch as friends get into rant mode about that cheesy Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? Because the reality is the Gospel of Luke starts with an incredibly surprising story. 
it isn't often in the first century that the story of a teenage girl would be told. It isn't often that the consent of a teenage girl would be asked the way that God asks. And Mary consents, she affirms, let it be with me according to your word. But then something even more. I love the rants around Mary, did you know? Because in Luke's gospel, the gospel that some scholars compare to a Disney movie, because Luke's gospel has these wonderful musical parts, you can hear Mary singing. Mary sings out the Magnificat, a piece of uh, poetry that gets brought down through the centuries. Parts of it come from Hannah's song in, the, um, in Mary's culture's scripture. But Mary prophesies that this child to which she will give birth will bring down the mighty from their thrones, will lift up the hungry. The hungry. Mary prophesies at the beginning of Jesus's story. And this piece of poetry becomes a piece of music, and it's sung every evening in evening prayer. There's a story from uh, the 20th century. An Episcopalian seminarian named Jonathan Daniels was in his seminary chapel, and he had earlier in the day on the radio heard Dr. King inviting white college students specifically uh, to get on buses, to become freedom riders, and come down to Alabama. And he didn't think much of it until he was in chapel and he heard that Magnificat. He heard Mary's song and he heard in it the invitation. And so he took a leave of absence from seminary and he rode on one of those buses and went down to where he believed God was working to knock the mighty off their thrones to lift up the humble and lowly. Jonathan Daniels integrates an Episcopal church against the wishes of the rector and vestry and then is later martyred as he protects a young Ruby Sales uh, from an assassin's bullet after they've been arrested for protesting, all because of the story and the song of a teenage girl that is being remembered in scripture. Mary is a pretty unique figure. She's pretty amazing in this history of the church. I've got behind me uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe, Mary has played a role in the popular imagination of Christianity. And that's been true from the early days. The Quran in Islam never mentions Jesus without Mary. Mary has this pride of place in the tradition. And it's a surprising thing. Mary is not to be ignored. But it gets us into these questions of Jesus and God's gender. Um, this image just here, I found today as I was Googling, and I cannot find a source for it. It's all over the place. So if you know what it is, I'd love to know. But it is just terrifying, this CrossFit Jesus. Uh, and here we have the conundrum of modern Christianity. Because Jesus breaking the cross with his muscles is absolutely the antithesis of what the church has traditionally taught about Jesus. This idea of a muscular Jesus, a hypermasculine Jesus, is the antithesis 
of St. Paul's interpretation of Jesus, who said that equality with God was not something to be grasped after. And so Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the form of passivity. There is power in weakness in the traditional understandings of Christianity. So Jesus breaking the cross with his muscles is so problematic. And yet, and yet, this idea of a muscular Christianity, a hypermasculine Christianity, a reclaiming of the, the muscular, masculine Christian man is a part of American Christianity, especially in the 20th and 21st century. And it's so far away from Jesus. Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, who I mentioned at the top, questions whether what happens at the Last Supper where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, whether part of what's going on there is that Peter can't accept that his Savior is acting in the part of a servant, or whether it's more, whether Peter can't accept that Jesus is acting in the part of a woman. Jesus disregarded all sorts of normal things about women. Jesus talked to women in scripture while they were alone at a well or engaged with women that really the codes of his time, the understandings of gender of his time wouldn't have allowed. And at one point, as Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, lamenting over uh, the city of Jerusalem, looking down over the city, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how like a mother hen, I would have liked to gather your chicks under my wings. A scriptural image, but in the mouth of Jesus, an image of God that is feminine. There is more in scripture around gender than you might have been taught to see. And Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza again has a name for Mary Magdalene. This is an image of what will hopefully soon be a window in our chapel at Holy Communion. And before uh, we did the renovations, our assistant rector at the time, Lori Anzalotti, pointed out that it wasn't just that our church lacked images of people of color in biblical roles. You know, we got a lot of white Jesus in our windows at Holy Communion, like in most churches in North America. But it wasn't just a problem that we had no images of people of color in biblical roles, but the only images we had of women, the women were kneeling. And so as we conceptualized what our future stained glass would look like, one of the images was an image of Mary Magdalene, who Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza gives the title, the apostle to the apostles, because on the resurrection morning, which this image depicts, Mary is sent to tell the boys that Jesus is risen. The relationship of Mary and Jesus, particularly in John's gospel, is one that has caused scholars and folks who read scripture to have to read again and again and again, because it defies all sorts of norms. But there is no question that there on this Easter morning, when Jesus sends Mary to tell Peter and James and John what has happened, Mary is the first one to take steps out to tell the good news. And so in this window, uh, Mary is gonna have her fists raised 
And Mary is going to be the one that says that the powers of the world, the oppressive powers of the world that didn't have the last word. The movement goes on. There's so much more we could say about gender and sexuality and scripture. I'd love to hear your questions Sunday morning at our virtual coffee hour. There should be links in the description and in the comments for these videos. We'd love to have you sign on to Zoom with us and talk at coffee hour about your experiences around gender and sexuality and the Bible. And this is just an introduction, but I really give thanks for all of those scholars that I've gotten to study with and talk with and read who have done some groundbreaking work to help us to know that scripture has a lot more to say about sex and gender than we might have been told at the beginning. Hope to see you on Sunday.